Today's reading is 1 Kings 5, 1 through 5, and 8, 1 through 13. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ithanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark, and they brought up the Ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel, who had assembled before him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. The word of the Lord. Well, Matt kind of spoiled it um, with his prayer, but uh, you know what today is, right? Uh, Today is Halloween, All Hallows' Eve, uh, and I, for one, am leading the campaign to put the hollows back in All Hallows' Eve, but I don't know how well that is going gonna to work out. But um, anyways, this is also, thank you for that, Eric. Uh, this is also Reformation Sunday, because on this day, 504 years ago, a, a young Augustinian monk nailed his 95 theses to the, uh, the castle church door, in Wittenberg, and you know, yada, 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 all these years later, here we are, gathered in a Protestant worship service. And so what does Reformation Sunday have to do with our passage, which is about the decision to build and then the dedication of the temple, of Solomon's temple, the first temple? Well, more than you might think. In fact, there's a very uh, a simple connection to make to them, is that the Reformation actually all began with a building project. Um, It began with the decision to build uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Has anyone here ever been to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome? Yes, raise your hand. All right. Yeah, we got more than you'd think. Okay, 
Is it a nice, it's, it's my, I've never been, but my understanding is that it is one of the most marvelous structures, you know, that human civilization has ever produced. It's, it's, art, it's architectural and artistic beauty is basically unsurpassed in the entire world. So, you know when you're building something like that, it ain't going to be cheap. And so, the Pope decides to build this, and then you've got the problem of how are you going to pay for it? Well... Uh, one thing you can do is start selling some plenary indulgences. And, uh, you know, you find some very creative salesmen. Uh, Johann Tetzel was one of them who came up with that famous line, uh, well, probably the first marketing slogan that we know of, every time a coin in the coffer or the kettle rings, a soul from purgatory springs. How can you pass up a pitch like that? Uh, and, and so thus comes the uh, gross abuses of selling these indulgences. Uh, thus begins, you know, Martin Luther's objections. Thus, the Protestant Reformation. So it all started with fundraising for a building project. Building projects are kind of a big deal. We probably could have learned something from Johann Tetzel as we were trying to raise money for the Elevate project. I think we did a little bit of a soft sell on that one. But uh, in, in, <laughs> there was no promises of, uh, of everlasting life in that. And so in 2020, though, we, you know, we, we, we spent more than $650,000 here with the Elevate Project to make our facility accessible. That was a huge deal. And, and this passage actually has to say something about that, too. But th this morning, you know, we're doing the, the, the narrative lectionary, looking at some of the great Old Testament um, um, stories and Old Testament figures. And, and this morning, our focus, so it's not going to be on Solomon, who is David's son, really the, the king who stands at kind of the, the apex of, of ancient Israelite power and, and the ancient monarchy. We're not going to focus on him. We're not even going to focus so much on the temple itself and its structure, though if, if you study the temple, it's, it's really, there is so much um, theological and, and, and kind of, uh, uh, you know, wisdom that can be gleaned from, from studying its, its design and its structure, uh, but instead we're going to focus today on the God who builds. And so we'll start in chapter 5, where Hiram, he's the king of Tyre. He, he had a good relationship with David. Him and David had an alliance, and he was a big fan of David because David had defeated the Philistines, and the Philistines were the bane uh, of uh, the, the Tyrians. And so Hiram, Hiram hated them. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so he and David had a great relationship. And then he learns that Solomon becomes king. And so, you know, he sends out a diplomatic envoy to congratulate him on rising to the throne. And, and Solomon, you know, before Hiram can even say congratulations, sends back his desire to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. And this act, this act of building the temple is the high point of Solomon's kingship. It's really the high point of the ancient Israelite, Israelite monarchy and the short-lived United Kingdom of Israel. Everything comes to an apex. Really, I think Solomon's his prayer of dedication, which we don't get to, uh, that comes right after our passage today, that's really the high point of the monarchy in the Old Testament. And this decision, though, to build a, a house for the name of the Lord, it, it reflects two realities. It teaches us two things about the God who builds. It teaches us about the God who promises and the God who gives peace. Now, just to set the scene a little bit, so ever since the days of the wilderness wanderings, the Israelites leave Egypt and they've worshipped God in something called the tabernacle, which was essentially a portable temple. It was a tent temple. And they were a people on the move. They were a people who were nomadic and constantly wandering. And so their church needed to move with them. 
And this situation, it, it persisted after they entered the land. It persisted in the period of the judges. It persisted into the monarchy of Saul and then the monarchy of David it, until one day David said, well, this isn't right. We've become a settled people. We have, uh, we're united under, under one ruler. Uh, we have a capital city, a proper capital city in Jerusalem. You know, this is, this is a scandal. Everyone settled down. We're all living in houses but we're still going to worship in a tent. And so their place of worship was still, in a sense, temporary, even though they had settled down. And so, and so David vows, I'm going to build, God, I'm going to build you a temple. I'm going to build you a house. And God says, thanks, you know, but, but not so fast. David, uh, you know, David was a great king, but he was a warrior king, and, and David had a lot of blood on his hands. And so God promises, you're not going to build it. You can't build it. But, but your son, the one who will sit on your throne afterwards, he will build a temple. And the reason that God was allowed this, would allow this is he was going to grant the people the requisite peace and prosperity they needed to do this. And so this entire building project would not have been possible without the promises of God. The promises of God are, are the premises upon which all of our practices are based. Right? The true foundation of this temple is not any building uh, materials that, that, that Solomon's going to be able to get from Hiram. It, it's not any stones that they're going to you know, quarry from around Jerusalem. The, the, the true foundation of all of this building are God's promises. Those are the essential raw material with which Solomon needs to build. And the same is true for us. As we gather in this, you know, our own version of, of this house for the name of the Lord, uh, each and every week we are gathering to be reminded of and to be nourished by the, these promises of God. These promises that we need, these promises that he will be our God and, and we will be his people. His promises to forgive us, his promises to save us, his promises to, to bless us, to fill us with his spirit, to console us, to strengthen us, to give us justice. Justice, everything we do as a, as a body and as individual believers, all of those things are predicated on the God who promises, including building things, because we believe that God has promised to use what we build for his purposes long after we're gone. You know, I, I think standing in here, right? I think of the, the, the faithful women and men who built this sanctuary that we're in here. And in fact, it was this sanctuary was built in 1924, almost exactly 100 years ago. But there was an original church building uh, that was built in 1912. And I think of all those faithful people, and they built something, and they're dead, all of them. And, and actually, I don't think like any of those families really have any relatives who are around anymore worshiping here today. But they believed in God's promises. They trust in the God who promises so much that they decided to build something for a future that wouldn't include them. And I think that's such an incredible testimony to their faith. But what makes the building possible is, is not just the promises, but the reality of peace that the people are experiencing. Solomon is, is very explicit on that point. Because he knows that you can't build things when there's conflict. That's not a time to build. 
You don't do so because when there's conflict, your energy, your attention, um, your resources, like everything is directed elsewhere. They're directed towards fighting your enemy, sadly, who also might be your neighbor, or, or from defending yourself uh, against them, and so you just kind of hunker down and, and go into bunker mode. And another reason that you don't build when there's conflict is you're not sure if this thing that you build is going to last, if it's going to stand the test of time, or if you're going to be building something that, that the enemy is just going to get to move into and take over. So when there's conflict, it's just not a time to build. And so building can only take place when God grants his people a season of peace, of rest, of Sabbath. That's when it's time to build. You know, this was true from our own experience. Uh, before we embarked on our building campaign, uh, we hired a, a consultant. That's what the you know, best practices tell you you're supposed to do, and I think that is true. Eric Eli, I think he was, he was worth what we paid him. And he came in here, and you may have participated in it, but he did something called a feasibility study. Just to see, okay, is this a good time? You want to do this big thing? You think it's time to build? Well, it's sort of testing that, stress testing it, seeing, uh, you know, is there resources? And, and, but, but even more than that, what, what he's trying to figure out is he's looking for peace. Is this a time of congregational conflict, or is this a time of harmony? And that's such an important point. That's such an important question to suss out and discern. Because if there's no peace, you can't build anything. And it's so important for us to keep in mind, and we can extrapolate this out from the, you know, literal, uh, actual building projects that we do, uh, but, you know, to, to the metaphorical sense, right? We can't build anything when we're mired in conflict. When we're mired in conflict, we're not able to build healthy relationships, when we're mired in conflict, we can't advance towards any sorts of sense of mission or of purpose. When we're in conflict, you know, it's, it just triggers that fight-or-flight mechanism. So we're either just going into battle or, or, or we're just, you know, retreating within ourselves, going into survival mode. And so the God who builds is the God who wants to give us peace and to teach us peace. And so knowing that, let us pray for peace, let us seek peace, let us be peacemakers. Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, sons and daughters of God. So the God who builds is the God who promises and the God who brings peace. But the last point here from chapter 5 is that the God who builds is also the God who works through uh, both the, the, the sacred and the secular. I think it's better to say that the God who builds is the God who, who just obliterates that distinction, who, who makes the secular sacred. Here's what I mean. We left it out of our reading today, but immediately after, you know, Solomon tells Hiram he's got this plan to build a temple, and it's, it's founded on, on God's, uh, you know, promises and the peace that God has granted to his people. Right after that, he goes, Okay, and here's my lumber order. You know, I'm going to need about this many timbers from the cedars of Lebanon. And so, you know, it's like going to Home Depot and saying, you know, God uh, has granted us peace and prosperity and made a sacred promise to my father. And so I'd like, uh, you know, 200 two-by-fours and 18 sheets of plywood, et cetera, et cetera. And for us, it's this mixing of kind of theology and purchase orders is strange. But the God who became flesh in a carpenter 
should remind us that there's no division between the sacred and the secular. And that's one of the the great themes of the Reformation that's appropriate for Reformation Sunday. You know, in the the medieval church, there was a a stark divide. You know, if you were a religious, you could be a religious person, religious clergy or non-religious clergy. That makes no sense to us. All clergy are religious. But no, if you were a religious person, that means you had taken monastic vows and you were part of a religious order. And, and, And so, you know, those people were the people who were expected to kind of, you know, take everything seriously and do it. And, and then there was everyone else. They were kind of doing it on behalf of the rest of, of the populace. And one of the legacies of the Reformation was saying, no, 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 no. That kind of monastic standard, the idea of committing oneself to God with, with one's whole life, that applies to the entirety of the population, including the clergy and the cobbler. And Martin Luther allegedly said, and I'll just be honest at the outset, I don't think he actually said this, but the sentiment captures what he said. It sounds cooler if you say it's from Martin Luther than some random person said this, but, but, but it's attributed to him often that he said, a Christian cobbler doesn't do his work, you know, as a Christian by putting, you know, making shoes and then putting little crosses on them. He says that's not how it happens. But, but he does it by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. And so uh, the truth of the matter here is God enlists us to use our secular vocations, uh, uh, our, our, our human and, and natural resources and his gifts for his glory. And so the truth then is that a lumber order can be sacred. An electrical job can be sacred. A plumbing job can be sacred. Data entry can be sacred. Customer service can be sacred. Driving a bus can be sacred. Teaching can be sacred. Raising children can be sacred. Creating something can be sacred. Running a business can be sacred. When we use those gifts to love our neighbors and to build something for God. All right, so all that is just from chapter 5, those first five verses of chapter 5. That's a whole sermon, but you get bonus material here. Because next we move to chapter 8, and this is the chapter about the dedication of the temple. We're told this is this massive celebration. It involves, yes, the civic and religious leaders, but it also involves the entire congregation of Israel. And it's this grand processional where they take the sacred objects that were in uh, the the, the tabernacle, and they take them from, you know, where the, the king's palace was, and they take them up to the new temple. So the vessels, and especially the Ark of the Covenant. And it says that there, there were so many sheep and oxen that were sacrificed that they couldn't be numbered. And the picture that's being painted here in this passage is this about the God who builds. That he wants us to party and celebrate his goodness. You know, we sometimes can think of, uh, uh, in our kind of chronological snobbery, we can think of, of sacrifice as this barbaric practice that I'm so glad we got rid of. But, but we need to be reminded that in so many ways, the ancient temple was like a, a barbecue joint. That, that much of the, the, the uh, you know, animals that were sacrificed, so often that part of that was then given over to um, the people offering it and the priests to eat, to have a, a celebratory uh, meal. And so the temple was kind of a combination of a, of a slaughterhouse and a, and a restaurant all in one. And, and this was a party for the, the whole congregation of Israel. You know, rich and poor, young and old. Every single person got to feast. Not just the elites, not just the elders and the priests. And everyone got to feast on mutton and, and beef, which would have been quite the delicacy if you were a poor person for whom meat has always been a relatively rare part of their diet. This 
This was an amazing meal. And so the God who builds and invites us to build with him is the God who invites us to stop and to celebrate and to party together when we're done. Just yesterday, I had the occasion to attend a church building dedication. I'd never been to one of these things before. Uh, but my friend, Rick Stores, he is the, uh, he's the, the vicar, the rector. I love those English Anglican names. You know, they have all these cool these cool names for pastor and minister, but, but he's the vicar at uh, Restoration Anglican, and, and they're a church plant who was actually able to purchase what was Mount Zion Lutheran Church. If you are familiar with that, it's over on 56 in Chicago, right over there by what is now Kowalski's. It used to be Jubilee Foods, rest in peace. But they were able to purchase this church, Mount Zion Lutheran Church, for $1. They sold it to him for $1. It was incredible. And it was quite, you know, the celebration for them. And, and it made me think of this passage. You know, the, the, the bishop was there, and, and it was this huge celebration. All the people were there, and gathered outside the door, and then they blessed the door, and blessed the sanctuary, and the, the pulpit, and the Bible, and the baptismal font. They blessed the, the instruments, even the egg shaker got blessed, and, 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 and the Lord's table. I mean, everything got blessed. Total blessing. And so, you know, sitting, me sitting there in the back of the sanctuary, getting to to participate and witness this. It was just seeing this congregation stop and take time out to offer this incredible thank you to God for this church that though they didn't build, they now get to inhabit because of his grace. Which was a reminder to me that at some point, you know, we, we, speaking of Elevate, we need to stop and celebrate that, right? I think that's one of the hard parts that the pandemic has kind of robbed us of that opportunity. And I do think, you know, Kids are going to get vaccinated soon, and that's great. And so I do think, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to COVID for sure. But, but at some point we'll have the kind of collective permission, whatever that is, we need to, to, to start living life on the other side. But I say we, whenever that is, you know, we need to have a celebration. We need to thank God for what he has allowed us to build, to, to, to feast and to party and just enjoy his good gifts to us because it reflects the character of the God who builds and actually delaying a celebration like we have, it's not without precedent. In fact, that's exactly what had happened in our passage this morning because the, the dedication, feast, and celebration was actually 11 months after construction on the temple itself was completed. So we stand, in delaying our celebration, we stand within the biblical tradition in doing that. But finally, and this is just the last thing I want us to look at about the temple itself and the, and the God who builds is this. The, the two things that are highlighted is being present in the temple itself. There's the cloud and then there's the ark, but really what's in the ark, but, but the cloud. All right, so first the cloud. We're, we're told, okay, the, the, they bring the ark in, and then the priests leave the, the holy place after placing the ark of the covenant there, and the service gets interrupted by the presence of the cloud. They, they, they got to stop sort of what they're doing because there's too much cloud in the place for them to continue. And this cloud is what's referred to elsewhere as, as God's Shekinah glory. This is an indicator of God's presence. So we know that it's not just Solomon and the people have built this house for God, uh, but that by the presence of this cloud, it means that God has agreed to move in there. And now later in his prayer, Solomon acknowledges that there's no way that the God of the universe can be contained in this one place. But there's an acknowledgement, nevertheless, that, that the, what makes the temple so, so, so special is that it is the location on earth, the building, where the God of the universe has decided to make his presence manifest to his people. And so the cloud filling the temple, it's actually what prepares us to, to understand what comes later on 
in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The temple is something that combines the, the physical and the spiritual, the, the immaterial and material, in such a way that when the earliest Christians were trying to make sense of, okay, who was this person, Jesus of Nazareth? How do we explain how we understand the relationship between humanity and God that we see in him? They didn't first turn to, you know, Greek metaphysics or, you know, pagan mythology, which was filled with all sorts of, you know, demigod uh, figures, but instead they turned to the imagery of the temple itself. John 1 opens by saying, you know, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but that, that word for dwelt is, is actually a word tabernacled. You might even say templed amongst us. And when Jesus talked about the resurrection, he did so in terms of the temple, saying, what, tear this temple down, and in three days, I will rebuild it. And the New Testament author spoke about the church as a, as a spiritual temple, God's people as living stones in the new temple that is built up in Christ. And so the temple and the cloud are what prepare us for the coming together of heaven and earth, of God and humanity in the person of Jesus Christ, how how the presence of God can be fully manifest in something that is completely human. So the temple then is, is a signpost that points to and prepares us for the incarnation of Jesus who would fulfill the purpose for which the temple was built to fully reconcile humanity and God and to, and to be God fully present with his people. All right, so that's the cloud. But there's something else in the temple. There's the Ark of the Covenant, or uh, the easy-to-read version of the Bible translates this delightfully as the box of agreement. I like that. The box of the agreement. God had agreed to enter into a relationship with his people, so here's the box. But it's not so much as, as the Ark, but what's inside the Ark. It says there was nothing in the Ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So the only sacred object inside the temple was the Ten Commandments, which on this Reformation Sunday ought to serve as a wonderful reminder of the centrality of God's Word in the life of His people. God's Word is a gift that He has given to guide us. It's sacred. Through it, God has chosen to speak to us, to reveal Himself to us, and to direct us in the ways that we should go. And it's an immeasurable, incalculable gift. And, and in God's house, it belonged inside the most sacred object, the Ark of the Covenant, in the most sacred place, the Holy of Holies, the very inner sanctum of the temple where only the high priest could go once a year. Right? You couldn't get more sacred, more special, more set apart than this. And so this Reformation Sunday, we remember that what the Reformation was primarily about was the recovery of the Word of God for the people of God, for all of us. You know, in the centuries prior, the, the, the word was only for those who could read or understand Latin. It was not read or expounded upon in the language of the common people. But the word is central to everything we do as Christians. Everything we believe, everything we do, how we worship, how we live, how we, how we seek to order our lives and even society. So my final word is this, that, that the God who built builds in order to give a central and special place for his word, his unbreakable life-giving word. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.